Hello and welcome to Bootstrap, the podcast for software bootstrappers. If you are running a software company or looking to start one, then this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Steve McLeod. This podcast is sponsored by Balsamic, makers of Balsamic wireframes, everyone's favorite low-fidelity wireframing tool. Balsamic is a fantastic tool, especially for product founders who have lots of ideas for their apps but can't afford to hire a UX designer. Balsamic is as easy as PowerPoint. Just drag and drop elements on the page and you'll have the screens for your app designed in no time. You can then work on them with a developer or even validate them with clients before writing any code. Balsamic is a bootstrapped company and they love our podcast. Because they're well known in our community, they've decided to try something new. Instead of having me read their sponsorship messages in future episodes, they want to donate their airtime to you, the listeners of this show. So, if you're a bootstrapped founder and can't afford to sponsor a podcast yet, go to balsamic.com go slash bootstrapped and fill out the application form. I'll read your ad here in a forthcoming episode. There are only nine spots available, so act fast. There's also a promo code on that page just for our listeners. Again, balsamic.com slash go slash bootstrapped. With me today is Craig Hewitt for the fifth week in a row. Craig is the co-host of the Rogue Startups podcast, and he also runs a podcast hosting and analytics platform called Castos. Craig, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, really good, Steve. Thanks. How about yourself? Excellent. Yeah, the, uh, the weather's turning. It's getting a little bit colder here in Barcelona, and it's my favorite time of the year. Not too hot, not too cold, but still the sun shining. Yeah. Yeah. We took a trip down into the city yesterday, uh, or sorry, Wednesday. And I was telling my my kids the same thing that up until Christmas, really, it's beautiful. And like here in Annecy, we have these big Christmas markets. I don't know if you guys have them in Barcelona. I think they're influenced by like the German kind of culture coming down. And they have these huge Christmas markets all the way from like the middle of November through Christmas. And they're really cool, like a really, really interesting vibe in the city. Yeah. The German Christmas markets are the best thing ever. We do yeah. have something in Barcelona, obviously inspired by Germany, but it's it's nothing. But yeah. Yeah, I lived in Germany <laughs> for years, and I have to say it was one of the few things I liked about living in, in winter there. It's just magical. Yeah. The, uh, do you do Glühwein or the like the – do you know Glühwein or am I using uh, a German? I know, I know Glühwein very good. Yeah, we in France we call it Von Schott. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's not the healthiest thing to be doing, but uh, going out to the – zero degrees weather and December and cupping your hands, your freezing hands around a warm mug of glue vine. Ah, it's yep. wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what about Castos? What's been happening in the world of Castos in the last week? So I got a couple things, I guess. So we have been experimenting with some paid acquisition stuff. And I mean, it's kind of like an evolution. If you've ever done like a lot of paid acquisition, you start and you get like to a point that's like, decent, right? And then it's just optimize, optimize, experiment, optimize. And that's solidly kind of where we are. Denise and I are talking, you know, a couple of times a week with 
new approaches and plans and stuff like that. And it is super fun. Like I've never fun. done a lot wow. of, <laughs> yeah, I've never done a lot of paid acquisition and not, we're not doing a lot, but it's just really neat. It's just really neat to see like the time to effect is super quick, right? We can say, okay, we're going to start this campaign. We're going to spend $20 a day. In three days, we see that something is happening, you know, as opposed to like content marketing or, or even like podcasting, I have to say, is like, you can do it for a super long time and never know or never see if it's working. Yeah. So I'm hearing you. I love content marketing as a way of acquiring customers, but, and I, I'm pretty sure it works if you have product market fit, but you have to wait six months or a year to really find out. Yeah. And that's, a, and that's a long time. I kind of scared of getting to paid acquisition because I've heard so many stories of people spending thousands of dollars pretty quickly while they're just learning what to do before they actually start spending the money wisely. So that's why I haven't done it. But have you been through that phase of spending a lot of money on paid acquisition and finding it didn't actually work until you got the got it down pat? Yeah. So I've done it myself in the past, big time with Facebook. And now I think, you know, Denise is a really smart marketer. And so between the two of us, I think we've not messed it up too bad. <laughs> you know, of course, like you, you start campaigns and they don't work and you turn them off and that's just how it goes. So like some of it is just like the, the cost of trial and error. But yeah, we've we've done okay so far. And $20 a day is uh, much less than I thought you would have to have paid. So you actually get reasonable data from that? Yeah, it's a decent starting point. I mean, I think that you look at some of these companies, especially like in the B2B space, and they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, but it's like cash flow positive, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, right, right. It can uh, eat up your, it can be bad for cash flow in the short term, but long term, it makes sense. Right. What about, uh, what, what channel are you trying to use? Is it Facebook or Google Ads? Or do you maybe not want to say because of competitors who might be listening yeah, I maybe don't want to say because of competitors. <laughs> no, I think, so the way we think about it is that you choose the ad platform based on the type of content you want to serve and the type of things people are doing there, right? So like Facebook is very interest-based, whereas something like AdWords is very intent-based. So someone is searching for something on AdWords, so you show them certain things there. Facebook is someone scrolling through their feed and you show them something that they're interested in. Um, mm. And so I think if you can align those two with like ad copy and landing pages and stuff like that, then Either can work for sure. And you just have to make sure you have all that considered before you start. Mm, interesting. We're thinking of experimenting with LinkedIn adverts when in the new year. Mm. We've got a couple of landing pages focused on very well-defined uh, niches or market segments. And I thought because our product's B2B and we get some traction on LinkedIn with sharing articles there that we'll try that and I'll try it in a very narrow geographical area and a very narrow set of, I don't know if it's interests they do on LinkedIn or if it's more like industries. My investigation into doing Google AdWords for us, it just looked too, too hard to compete. Yeah, yeah. because you have those yeah. companies that are have lots of investment and lots of money to spend and mm -hmm. will pay a lot to acquire customers. And there are lifetime values like 10 or 100 times ours as well. Yeah. Maybe yep. not 100 times, but 10 or 50 times ours. Yeah. It's hard to compete with that. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And I think that's the that's the cool thing about some of these, you know, platforms other than AdWords is, you know, yeah, LinkedIn. I understand LinkedIn is typically pretty expensive, but, you know, maybe there's a, an aspect to it or an angle that you can take. But then even things like Quora and Reddit, 
may be places to go. I don't know, like for a B2B audience, I don't know how good it is, but I think that definitely exploring a, like all the ad networks makes sense. And and like even you in a B2B sense, I, I wouldn't shy away from some of the non-B2B platforms because like people are still like looking for cat videos, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, no yeah. matter who they are and you can, you know, get to know them there. Uh, bored people at work. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I get retargeted a lot on Facebook. I find something I've been looking at for work and then I'm in Facebook and I'm seeing adverts for that stuff in Facebook and I can see mm-hmm. what's going on there. And it's pretty good. Sometimes it just reminds me that they exist or that I was looking at them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. How about you? How are things with Feature Upvote? So we did something quite bold in the last week. For the first time ever, we changed our sign-up process. We've been working on it for a while, but we put it live. I think last Friday, or maybe I'm already losing track and it was two weeks ago. No, I think it was just last Friday. So we reduced the number of fields in our sign-up process from six to three. We reduced it from two pages to one page and we rewrote the sign-up completed page you see when you finish signing up as well as the welcome email that gets sent. And I'm really happy with it. It's like I said, it's the first time I've done this ever. Uh, it's the kind of thing I'm, I was scared to change because it didn't seem to be broken uh-huh. and it's the most critical thing, but it's really easy to change back. You know, if we find that this new one isn't working as well as what we had, it's no problem to just go back to the way we were. Yeah. Those are the, the, the cool kind of experiments to run. Like, you know, it's a decent amount of work maybe, but like you said, you can revert back for some period of time. I'm sure if it's not working out, but if it is, maybe it could increase your new trial rate substantially and, and the number of people that then convert into customers. Yeah, I think once you get some degree of product market fit, things like that are a lot of fun to to play with. Yeah, it was actually quite fun optimizing it too. They say, they I don't know who they are, but they say that every additional field you have in your sign-up process uh, increases the amount of people dropping off. And every page, additional page, also leads to a drop-off. So perhaps by halving our fields, we'll see a little bit of boost just from that. I don't know if that effect really will be noticeable with our sign-up process, but we're going to find out. Hmm. Which fields did you get rid of? Good question. We no longer ask for the person's name. We used to ask for their name and email. The name was so we could do personalization in our emails, but we actually weren't using it very much. So we figured that having a one less field in the sign-up process was probably better than being able to say, hello, Steve McLeod in the uh, Right. Emails we're sending out to people. <laughs> and I, I think nobody is really fooled by personalized emails these days. Yeah. Could yeah. be wrong. We got rid of the organization name, which was an optional field or the company name. Again, we didn't really need it at this stage. It's something that we will get when the person actually converts to being a paid customer. And the third one, yeah, so we, this is a technical thing. When somebody signs up, we ask them the name of the product or... Um, event or project that they want to get feedback on. And then we were asking them to pick a subdomain to go with that, to use on our featureupvote.com domain. And it struck me after a while that this just wasn't interesting or necessary to choose for a lot of people. And in fact, it was a technical detail that the non-technical users were probably a little bit confused by. So now we just automatically generate a subdomain. I think it's based on the um, name of their product they want to get feedback on, but they can change it afterwards if they want. And the yeah. whole idea was to try and get somebody to seeing their feedback board live working with as little mental effort as possible. 
And I thought we had that already, but then when you come back and review something after a couple of years, you realize that actually it's not as streamlined as you thought. Yeah. No, I love it. I mean, I think that, I think it's a really good lesson, like that we want one, we are so, is it myopic, like close to our product that we can't see, whether you can't see the forest for the trees, right? You can't see like, oh, why, why am I requiring this slug yeah. field? Well, because it's in the database and it's associated with the user record or whatever. And like the, the customer doesn't care, right? Like they just want a right. feature board. Exactly. And yeah, we try to like, we haven't really formalized this, but we try to take some time, a couple times a year to just look at all of this stuff and say like, why are we doing this? Can we not do this? Can we do this automatically for the customer? Like you're doing, I love that idea of like auto-generating a slug, let them edit it, maybe let them edit it one time and then lock it or something like that. Yeah. To get to that moment of value quicker. I love it. Right, right. If you don't make an effort to look at these things, they just stay as they are year after year because you as the company owner, you're not going through the sign-up process ever mm -hmm. unless you actually make a conscious decision to do so. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. What I also enjoyed with this is that the whole team got involved. I've made, I've made it sound like I decided to get rid of this field and I decided to do that. Actually, my involvement was mostly just saying, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> no, maybe we could change this slightly. And that was really nice seeing that everybody now understands exactly why we've done everything. I understand yeah. why every page element is on the page of that sign-up process. Nice. Yeah. So hopefully that'll give us, I don't know, just even if it's just a few percent higher amount of people converting, that stays with us into the future. Yeah, no, I, I think these... These typically are like increment, big incremental wins. Like it might increase your your new trial count by 5% or something like that. And that's great. And then you go to another thing in a couple of months that increases it again. And like these are not shifting the whole structure of your business, but like these incremental wins are huge. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I have a story for you about Stripe. Do you use Stripe? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I got an email from the founder or co-founder of Stripe, sorry, not an email, a, a direct message on Twitter last week from Patrick Collison. And the reason I got this is because I made one of those drive-by snarky comments that we tend to make on Twitter, uh, criticizing Stripe's internationalization. Didn't think anything about it. It cost me nothing to complain. The founder himself contacted me and asked me if I could tell him a bit more about what my problems were. Wow. I got a real surprise and I wanted to actually ask him like, Surely you have better things to do than listen to some random person complaining. But then I was actually, it reminded me that there are real people behind these products, even if they've become a big part of the internet, they're still there hearing the feedback. And yeah, I felt a little bit chastised that it was unnecessary for me to have said what I said. I could have written it nicer. I could have contacted them directly. And he asked me what I was complaining about. And what I was complaining about is that I've set in the Stripe dashboard my preferred locale or language for all communication and the way the dashboard works. I want it to be in, a, I think I picked Australian English or American English, yet I still often get things in Spanish. Mm. It just pops up in the marketing content or in some like notification messages they give me. Do you, you're also not living where you're based. Do you, do you encounter these problems from time to time? Uh, I don't know. So yeah, we have, you know, Castos is based in the US, uh, Podcast Motor is based in France now. And so we have, you know, two Stripe accounts, one for each company. And, and about the only hassle that I have is like the French business Stripe account has, you know, obviously is in euros and has commas instead of periods. And I think I can mm -hmm. set that. 
But no, I've never gotten any French language stuff from Stripe. Okay, it could be that they've done a better job with internationalization for France than they have for Spain. Mm. This story is a very, very awkward segue into our topic for today, (laughs) (laughs) which is why Craig is in France, even though he doesn't sound very French, and why I'm in Spain, even though I don't sound very Spanish. Where exactly are you, Craig? You mentioned France. Where, Where is that? Yeah, so we live in a little village just outside of Annecy, France. So it's about 30 kilometers south of Geneva, Switzerland. A little village being, what, 500 people, 1,000 people? 1,000 people, yeah. And why are you living in a <laughs> French village of 1,000 people? <laughs> oh, it's a really long story. But basically, like uh, as an American wanting to live here, it's really tough to get uh, like a rental contract without a visa. We needed to uh, have a rental contract before we could get our visa. So it's this like chicken and the egg thing. And we have a friend of a friend that lived here. Uh, previously and then got divorced and both he and his wife left the house and the house was kind of empty. And so we, you know, got in touch with him. He said, yep, you can live in my house, no problem. So we were able to sign a lease with him because he was a friend without all the kind of hoops to jump through of a typical like French location service or something. And then we applied for our visa after that. And so we've been here three and a half years. And before that? Uh, Geez, before that. So I'm I'm from the States originally. I moved all around uh, there. Okay, so uh, quite a big change. And it's really interesting that you already mentioned the complication of dealing with the process of getting a visa, that you need to have a rental contract that people don't want to rent to people who don't have visas yet, blah, blah. Did yeah, you run we, into the same thing? Like, So you're <laughs> from New Zealand, but they live in Barcelona now, right? Like, yeah. was it relatively easy to do? No. Okay. <laughs> well, I moved here from Germany and I already had uh, permission to be living in the European Union. Uh, well, in a European Union country, it actually doesn't translate directly from one country to another, although I made that work. And as a foreigner wanting to rent an apartment here, they wanted my whole life story. I had to give them uh, the potential landlord, landlady actually, as she turned out to be, bank statements to prove that I had enough money to live on for multiple years. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I don't have a job, I also had to explain why that was and so on. And I had to put up uh, quite a big amount of deposit. Well, it turns out that by Spanish standards, it's not a big deposit, but I thought it was. I think it was three months rent in an account, which I kind of felt that I had no no control over that money. Just some person I'd never met now has my money and I'm trusting them to give it back to me. That and then dealing with uh, getting the residency permit and so on was in theory as easy. But in practice, I ended up having to get an immigration lawyer onto the case for me. And she went and battled against the immigration department here in Spain, who just for no particular reason, just were not approving my my, uh, residency permit. And she would have to go to them and say, so tell me, what's the problem? And like, no problem. So does he meet all the law? Yeah, I guess he meets the law. So are you going to stamp it? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll stamp it. (laughs) Now, she had to do three visits to get that to happen. Yeah, yeah. And how did you come to live in Germany originally? Because I I think that's like for a lot of people coming from outside the EU or really going to any other kind of, I don't know, any kind of like residential area that has different immigration rules like the Shenzhen zone here where you can go from Germany to Spain relatively easily. Going from New Zealand to Germany was the, the big step, I would guess, right? Yeah, so I was living in Australia at the time, although that's not relevant to the story, I guess. And I wanted to spend more time traveling and living in Europe for a while. And when I went through all my options, I found that the German government offered a one-year working holiday visa. 
and I just scraped into the uh, the maximum age. So I applied for that and got it. It turns out that very few people in Australia actually apply for that for any given year. Uh, I think it cost me $5, $5 Australian. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I remember like giving my passport with the $5 stuck in it to the person at the German consulate in Melbourne. And I made some joke like, it looks like I'm bribing you. And she just <laughs> joked and said, you'd have to pay me a lot more money than that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just proving straight away that Germans don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> and that got me to Germany. And I spent a year there just using it as a base and living off savings and doing lots of travel. And actually, things worked out for me pretty well there. And I found that if I could get someone to offer me a job, I was allowed to look for a job while I was there. And if someone offered me a full-time job, I could then get that converted to a visa. There was a special visa for IT workers at the time, which was supposed to be streamlined. And I just managed to do that. Uh, I think I had gone through all my savings. I was getting to the very last days of my working holiday visa when I'd have to leave the country. And then uh, I got this job offer and everything changed for me there. And that's why I stayed in Germany. And once I was there, you know, it was trips to the visa office every couple of years to get it renewed or updated until eventually I got permanent residency. Yeah. Nice. It was never easy. Never easy at all. No, no, for sure. I mean, we had uh, immigration or, you know, like visa consultant that we worked with out of Paris. It took about six months <laughs> to do and oh. several trips to Paris. And all this. it's just a disaster. I mean, thousands of dollars of work there. But I mean, we're here now for... You know, we had the similarly like a one-year tourist visa to start with, and then now we're on a, a what's called a talent visa here in France. For, That's because you're very talented? It's because, <laughs> relatively, I guess, <laughs> for four years, and we're about halfway through it. So, Okay, and then you'll have to go through the process again when it's time to renew it. Mm -hmm. For like, uh, well, we can apply for permanent residence then. Yeah, oh, after nice. five years of living here, we can apply for permanent residence, and that doesn't have any kind of strings attached then to like business and stuff. The visa consultant's a great idea. In Germany, I tried to do it all myself or with the help of friends. But in Spain, I just, I found the immigration lawyer and yeah, it really just made problems go away. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And now apparently uh, I'm on my second five year. I think I have permanent residency here in Spain. It's my identity card I have to renew every few years. And apparently in a couple of years, I'll be able to apply for uh, citizenship if I want it. I'm not sure if I want to be a Spanish citizen. I don't think I'm very Spanish enough yet, but it's nice to know I have that option. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so like several years into it now, and I know you have a new, like a daughter as well. Like what, how, how has it changed for you? Like, uh, you know, come off your, your past the honeymoon phase, even of living in Barcelona uh, to like you're, you live there full time and that's, that's kind of where your life is. What, what's different about it after like those first couple of years? I think the the good things I don't appreciate as much and the bad things affect me more. And the bad things here are the seemingly ceaseless bureaucracy. For example, uh, my company is registered at my residency. And when I moved apartment, I needed to move the company's official address. Now, where I come from, that's just done in five minutes on the telephone. Here, I had to go through a process with a notary. Uh, I had to pay about 600 euros to a couple of people, and the notary plus my accountant working together and, uh, you know, scheduling their date. And I had to get to a certain place in a particular time. Everything here is hard. And mm -hmm. at first that was all part of the experience and all part of the fun. 
Yeah. But it, it, it's not anymore. <laughs> yeah. Another problem is the language issue. I don't speak very good Spanish. I'm working very hard and trying to improve that, but you know, it's not good enough yet. Furthermore, there's actually two official languages here in Barcelona. There's Catalan and what we call Castellano, which is the variant of Spanish that most people think of as Spanish. And some authorities send me letters in Spanish. Some authorities send me letters in, in Catalan. No. Some send them in both. Some just seem to randomly switch from time to time. Oh, so not only am I dealing in one language I don't understand very well, I'm dealing in two languages I don't understand very well. Yeah. And yeah. that's just frustrating. No, that I mean we so we visited Barcelona several years ago and actually when we were making a decision on where we wanted to live, it was very high up on our list. It's a it's a beautiful metropolitan area, weather's great, but the language was the the biggest problem for us of of most of Spain because you know, every area Galicia has its own, Madrid has its own kind of version of Spanish and I mean for us at least in France yeah, French is a much harder language to learn than Spanish, I think. Um, and we do okay, but at least everyone speaks French in France. And like that uniformity is is pretty nice. I, I guess for folks who are considering moving somewhere, like the language is definitely hard. If you can make yeah. it less complicated, maybe than you have, Steve, with like <laughs> only having yeah. one to have to learn, uh, that's like just one less thing, you know? Yeah. In my apartment, we have my girlfriend speaking Italian to her family and to our daughter, me speaking English. Then we have the TV in Spanish and Catalan. We just have all these things just flying around all the time. And one language does make life easier, less interesting, but easier. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think for, for a lot of people choosing to live abroad, they prefer to go to a place where it's already their native tongue, or at least where there's a thriving community in their native tongue. Hence, you get so many of those digital nomad types going to Chiang Mai or Bali. It's because there's so many people there who are already speaking English that they can just ignore the whole language issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so for us, like three, yeah, three and a half years in, we're we're starting to run up against that a little bit. Like there's a decent expat community here in in Annecy. In our village, we're absolutely the only people that speak English, which is cool. That's fine. <laughs> it's the way to learn French, really. That's the balance, right? Is like, if you want to immerse yourself in the language and the culture, don't live in Barcelona or Amsterdam or something like that, where you can get by with not speaking the language and move to like, you know, kind of much by chance, really. We moved here and like, we have to learn French to get by and, and our kids and their friends and the parents and all that kind of stuff. The downside, I think, is it can get lonely, you know, from like a connection standpoint. So like, I think it's been really good for my wife and I, like we have a much stronger relationship because we're the only people we can talk to about a lot of things. And and that's good. Like, I think to a point because everybody needs space and, and different perspectives and stuff to talk to. So, you know, I think at three years and it's amazing, it's like taking this long, we're both kind of looking at like, is this the situation we want to live in forever? Like being kind of real foreigners in another country? Or do we want to maybe move to a place that has a bigger expat community or, or at least get more in, involved in the expat community here and, and finding some outlets where we can really be comfortable talking and kind of being in another country, but in our own language? Because I think you can learn Spanish really, really good, Steve, but you probably will never fit in with the local Catalan people, right? Or you can learn Cat Catalan and never fit in with those people really well, to a, to an extent. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I now have more empathy with people who have moved to my country and I see them struggling to fit in and yeah. understand the local culture and so on. And to go through that, you realize just how isolating it can be. Uh, this is never shown in the romanticized view of, of living abroad, that it is very lonely at times especially in the early days in which you don't even have anybody you can call on to go and see a movie or to go for a drink in the pub, depending on what type of thing you're into. For example, in Germany, I tried making friends by going to um, activities such as yoga and people try to make conversation. Well, not very often, but they would try it. And I couldn't even like engage in enough conversation to build up a friendship. It's very yeah. hard to do if you can only speak a, a beginner's level of a language. Yeah. So... Yeah, I can understand how the full immersion for you in a in a French village must have been very tough at times on uh, on the psyche. Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, it forced us to learn pretty decent French, and now, like, I'm really glad we did for for myself and for our kids because, like, we've adopted a lot of the culture, even of like this part of France. It's a really you know mountain town ish <laughs> kind of area, and, and so it has its own kind of vibe. And so we've picked a lot of that up with, with like our French and our mannerisms, and so that's cool. They think that like. For you, what I think what you might run into with with having a, a, a new baby and, and something that we're kind of starting to see is like education. That's a whole nother, that's probably a whole nother episode <laughs> uh, is like raising kids in another culture is complicated and it's not the same over the course of, you know, your your time there and your your kids' lives. Like we, we started thinking, yeah, our kids will be in French public school forever because it's really, really good. You know, the public school here is really good. And now we're kind of saying like, it's not great if our kids are essentially French and not like learning this stuff in English. So I think those kind of considerations longer term are things that Steve, you'll probably look at and that we're starting to look at with our kids. How old are your kids, Craig? They're uh, seven and my daughter will be nine later this month. And were they excited about the move to France? Yeah. I mean, they were so young, you know, it was three and a half years ago that they were just like, yeah, whatever. And like, you know, we'll just go. And we thought it'd be for a year and now we're here for, you know, three and a half years. Yeah. They're pretty adventurous, yeah. And yeah, so at home you speak to them in, in English and then the rest of their life is in French. Yep. Wow, that's, uh, yeah, you have French children, basically. Yeah. If you say they're long enough, they'll be fully French. Yeah, and so I think we're we're just starting to like do some things really proactively to guard their English and to help them develop in English better. And, you know, they might, they might go to a, an international or bilingual school at some point to really formalize yeah. that. Yeah, that's smart. I'm finding that having a child born here has opened up a lot of social life. Our neighbors speak to me more than ever. In fact, all the time, they uh, make more effort for me to persevere with them speaking to me in Spanish or they switch to English. Mm -hmm. And that's been really nice. I had no idea that having a child born where you're living would make everybody your friend, everybody like warm and interested in what you're doing. And that's been really nice. I, I think that's made me feel more than ever that I actually kind of fit in in Barcelona to some degree. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree, man. I think having kids makes all of that social stuff easier. And probably like you saw in Germany, like if you don't have kids, then making friends is just harder because you can, it's easy to be friends with your, your kids, pa friends, parents in that kind right. of like structure that's built in. Yeah. 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 Hey, what about business-wise? How has it affected your business living in France? You said that one business is registered in the States and one is in France, but yeah. I'm guessing you run it or as if it's an American business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, aside from the time zone stuff, 
it's really not any different. I run the businesses, you know, Podcast Motor originally was an American company and we moved it over here and that process was reasonable. And now I run it basically the same. The only thing to, to deal with is conversion, like currency conversion. But yeah, it's it's not bad in the time zone. I schedule all of my calls with like customers and, and leads and stuff in the US two days a week. And so two days a week, I work into the to the evening to like seven or eight o'clock. And that, that's about the only drag. Okay, but do you start later on those days or take time off in the afternoon? Yeah, I take time off in the afternoon. And I'm trying to think how it affects my business being in Spain. And apart from the pain of having to deal with Spanish bureaucracy and running a company here, I don't think it affects too much. I put on our website boldly that we're based in Barcelona. I feel there's no, no reason for hiding that. And perhaps some people have a positive concept of Barcelona when they see the company's based there. Occasionally people write asking like, I'm Spanish, but when I saw your name, I figured I should write in English. So uh-huh. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that for the most part, like, yeah, some of the bureaucracy is tough, but the running of the business day to day, the non-administrative stuff is all the same. And yeah. things like so you, Stripe and internationalization transfer-wise yeah. make it super easy. Yeah. Stripe came to Spain relatively late, and I guess it was for France too, but probably it arrived in 2015, which was before you got to France. Yeah. That was a bit frustrating for a while that I just couldn't use Stripe as a Spanish business. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it's all I've ever used, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely other options around, but Stripe is, the, of course, the very popular one with bootstrappers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, wrap up. Craig, thank you very much for, yet again for being on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. This is, a, this is a really cool topic. It's something I really like talking about, and if folks you know, have questions or want to, I think, you know, ping either of us about what this is like, we'd, we'd love to like, continue the discussion. Yeah, tell you the reality of it. Before we go, I'd like to thank you for being my temporary co-host for the last few weeks. Uh, listeners, this is the last time Craig will be on the show for this time. I'm sure he'll be back again soon. Starting next week, there'll be a new temporary co-host. So make sure to listen into the new episode to find out who that might be. So Craig, thanks again. It's been really great having you on board. Thanks, Steve. My pleasure. It's fun. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to discuss more about today's topics... As always, please go to our forum at bootstrapped.fm and join the conversation. Okay, bye, Craig. Bye, Steve. Bye, everybody. That concludes this episode of Bootstrapped. You can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm. Until next episode, goodbye.